That's one mismark in his resume, in his legacy, in his lineage. It's merely this, the day he didn't fight is the day the enemy crept in and took the lust of his heart and turned it into the error that would bring a reproach on his family for their entire legacy. I want to help somebody in this room. You take out your sword and you get right back in the middle of the fight. I don't know what the problem is in your church. I don't know what the challenge is in your life, but I can tell you what to fix it. You stay in the battle. You confront your enemies external, but you look in the mirror and you figure out what your errors are internally because both can take you out in a moment of weakness. Jason Huckabee is the pastor of Lakeview Pentecostal Church, Blue Springs, Missouri, a highly sought after conference and camp preacher and a true friend of mine. We only live about 20 minutes from each other. It's great to get together every once in a while. And normally we we don't talk with microphones ever. Truth. (laughs) But but, uh, we like to go eat, and after this, that's what we're going to go do. Brother Huckabee, great to see you. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great. Thank you, Brother Gleason. Thanks for uh, allowing me to be a part of this uh, medium uh, where you uh, communicate the truths of the gospel. And then, of course, uh, it's just fun to be with you and hang out. So uh, that makes it real easy. Fun, yeah. Not a whole lot of rules today. Oh, so. <laughs> that's dangerous. Right. Brother Huckabee, we talk a lot about Bible, God, church, all of that on here. But a lot of listeners, they really like to hear us talk about life and uh, just what's kind of going on behind the scenes. Most listeners are ages 18 to about 30 years old, but I find out that even people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and even I say 70s, they like to hear about life at 18 to 30. They want to feel like that again. Sure. I want to feel like that again. again. I'm 40 now. (laughs) Hey, I'm in good company. (laughs) That's right. That's right. And uh, I've heard you talk about your life and... You know, no matter if it was a good experience or a bad experience, you always make it such a an experience to learn from. And I just want to ask you, opening up with this, what was life like for you from ages 18 to 30? What were some of the main things that just kind of stick out to you, your experiences that you kind of help, you feel that helped shape who you are as a minister, as a husband, a father, and everything you do because those years are really critical they propel you right you know i think they're of vital importance uh as to what we become i, I don't think uh, you referred to uh the experiences and what you make of them uh i don't think that uh, you know we don't exhibit the fruits of the spirit based on our circumstances right you know, the fruits of the Spirit are the byproduct of the Spirit, not yes. not of circumstances. And so I'm not saying that people can't have crisis moments or challenging times, but Paul said to rejoice in tribulation. Come on. And so uh, if the joy of the Lord is our strength, then we got to have strength even in tumultuous times. Yeah. And so uh, I found... Uh, over the years, between my uh, my season of eighteen to thirty, I had good times and bad times. Right, you know, it was uh, right during that time I met my wife. Uh, shout out to Sister Huckabee. Shout out the to real Natalie. Boss. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, I also lost both my parents during that time too. So uh, that season of my life was. Uh, 
filled with uh, lots of struggles. I uh, I read something one time uh, about um, the challenges of uh, as as the as the the learning portion of our. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of the right way to frame it up here, but our uh, uh, our officers, the academies uh, that they go to, they say they um, when they're training, they say that uh, I forgot the percentage, but it's an inordinate amount of officers that die uh, uh, breaching the door, huh? In fact, yeah. they say at the academy that if you want to get in trouble, that uh, the, the the best way to get in trouble by your commanding officer or whomever it is that's trying to uh, teach you the proper way to breach a home, uh, it's in the high 80s to 90s percent of officers that die in a calendar year die breaching the door. In fact, so much so that they call it the fatal funnel. And here's the reason they call it that. It's the hallway. It's the place. It's the transition point in the breach. Hmm. It's the place you can't move to the right or the left. So the enemy can make you a target in that door. Because if you're inside the door, you can move to the right or the left. If you're outside the door, you can move to the right or the left. But when you start breaching that door, you have nowhere to move, and you become the target for the enemy. Mm. And as I read that, I think that's what your 18 to 30 years are. Yes, man. Because it's the fatal funnel. It's that time when you're making all most of your life altering decisions. You're going to choose a career. You're going to choose a college. You're going to choose who you get married. You're probably going to have your children uh, during the fatal funnel. Yeah. And so, what matters as you're breaching the door, and I, I hope this maybe answers your question. It is. Is what I found as I was breaching the door. And when I was the greatest target for a bad decision with regard to my education, with regard to my career choice, with regard to whom I would marry, that during that season, while I'm in the midst of making choices that have the potential to be a fatal funnel, I also have to listen to the voices that are commanding uh, this breach. Mm -hmm. And so I would say two things about that. 18 to 30 is where I think I first began to learn the voice of the Lord. Wow. Uh, I think prior to 18 to 30, I knew the voice of other people in my life. 18 to 30, when you're trying to navigate through life-altering decisions, I learned the voice of the Lord. And secondly, and very important to that, uh, 
uh, I had uh, good voices in my life. Absolutely. And I can look back to uh, my pastor when I was in college and what an impact he made. I had a wonderful student pastor during my college years who now pastors a great church in Nashville, uh, Roy Duke. But he was uh, yeah. an impacting voice in my life. And so uh, as I was navigating through the fatal funnel, I was able to listen to God and I was able to listen to those that the Lord had put around me to influence me, uh, and it helped me navigate through those years. I feel sorry, maybe, and and maybe not so sorry at times, uh, for uh, 18 to 30-year-olds, hyphens, if you will, yeah. that are going through the fatal funnel, uh, but they're, uh, maybe maybe they need that voice. They yeah. need a voice in their life. But I, I want to say this as clearly without any overtones of condescension. Uh, if you want to hear from the Lord, you can hear from the Lord. Right. So those years tend to be those years, you know, where we we say this as organizational leaders is they tend to be the years where we lose students. Yeah. But they don't have to be. No. Really, it's the greatest opportunity. It is the greatest years of opportunity to get to know the Lord, to spend time in prayer, to hear from the Lord. And so those 18 to 30-year-old years were the toughest of my life. But when I look back Mm. on it, they were maybe the most rewarding and what prepared me for apostolic ministry. You are listening to Justin C. Gleason. Please consider following and keeping this podcast playing in the background of your productive day. Give a five-star rating and support by giving through Cash App, PayPal, or Venmo at Justin C. Gleason. It's 2022, the year we prevail. a lot of the experiences you're able to now relate to a lot of people you hear him talking you're like whoa i've been through that sure i know where you're at sure yeah i think that's good i like that the fatal funnel yeah you can't move to the left or right you can't on the outside and on the inside but Mm -hmm. right when you're getting that door well it's a tough spot trying uh, trying to clear a house a building whatever law enforcement one writer said this uh and i think this helps us when we Uh, are making decisions in that 18 to 30-year-old age range. Uh, I read something one day uh, in the Word of God. The Scripture said this to Israel. Uh, In fact, I think it's Nehemiah, and that may be a misquote. I probably shouldn't do that. But uh, he said, don't open the gate until the sun's hot. Sounds like Nehemiah. Well, there was a reason for that. And the reason for not opening the gate until the sun was hot is because in the absence of the sun, there's not clarity. Right. And you don't know beyond that door whether it's friend or foe. (laughs) That gate, the gate represented the transition point in the wall. And I say this to 18 to 30-year-olds. 
That transition point is the weakest point in the wall. Mm-hmm. If the enemy's going to come in, he's going to come in through your transition point. Mm-hmm. And 18 to 30-year-olds need to understand this biblical concept from Nehemiah, and that is don't you dare make a decision without clarity. Mm. Because if you're not careful, you're going to look right through that transition point and you're gonna you're not gonna see the enemy that's behind the fog. Wow. He said, Don't open the door if there's fog. Yeah. Because the sun would come and burn the morning fog off. And when the sun was hot, you could see it. Mm-hmm. Also, when the sun came up, it represented daylight. Yeah. And you could see. So here's the thing. You don't let you don't make any decision during darkness. And you don't make any decision during the fog. Yeah. Because those are the places where the enemy comes into your city. Wow. We have to be careful in that 18 to 30-year-old range. Because, again, 18 to 30 is your transition point. Yes, sir. It's the same as the gate. (laughs) Wow. Don't make decisions between the age of 18 to 30-year-old, 18 to 30 years old, when it's dark and when it's foggy. Mm-hmm. Wait for that clarity. Wait for clarity. Absolutely. You and I are both 90s kids. That was a great decade. And I miss it, <laughs> truthfully. Yeah. We remember what life was like before the internet, uh, before smartphones, all of that. I never quite had an address book. I just had four or five numbers floating around in my head <laughs> all the time. But... I mean, I rode my bike all through the neighborhood, would go down to the gas station, get a Slurpee, a bag of chips. <laughs> I mean, are you letting your kids do that? No. No. I mean, so a lot of weird things happened to the world, and it even affected the church. But the 90s, I thought, were very special. I've been thinking about them a lot lately, maybe because I just turned 40. But what were some <laughs> things about church? That stand out to you, maybe how we did it, or certain people, iconic preachers, that I don't know, just really stuck with you, what you saw and felt. Well, you know, you can't help but I notice change, yeah. and and we, you know, we see that, and I and I think that it's I <clears throat> we saying. Um, I had this conversation with our worship director, and I think that's probably – there are a couple of things, and I think one is principally – I'll talk about that. The other, I think, is just how we uh, view the world and uh, maybe choices and, uh, you know, I, I, there's nothing wrong with it. Again, it's just preference. But sure. uh, I had a conversation with my worship director, who is much younger than I am, and I am by no means uh, old, as we have already pointed out here, Brother Gleason. Uh, but how old are you, bro? I am 49. All right. And so I was having this conversation, and um, I said, I feel like that in our worship forums that we need to have a balanced and varied approach to worship. Yeah. Uh, I say that because if we're not careful, uh, I think we uh, maybe even as a younger or now, as my doctor would say to me, a middle-aged man. Uh, I Thanks, uh, Doc. But um, one of the things that I would say that – changes or uh, that I've noticed is obviously in our worship forums. Uh, 
And so I, I say to our worship director, I say, I want a balanced, varied approach because we have uh, also, as a member of our multi-generational church, uh, there's some 70-year-olds out there that's never heard Maverick City in their life. <laughs> And so we get up and sing Maverick City, and they're back there going, what in the world is this? <laughs> you can't worship to it. You can't clap to it. You can't dance to it. And it's like, what What are we doing? We're not having church anymore. Yeah. Well, that's not true. You know, I but I are there portions of that. So I I say that to take really us to this point. That is probably what I miss is uh, there are a couple of things. One I, one of the things I miss is I love choir music. Sure. And those days were the '90s were really the heyday of uh, worship music, but it was choir music, mm-hmm. you know. And it's when. Uh, you know, you had some of those iconic choirs that would travel our fellowship, and and it was a great. I I love that atmosphere. So I love that sound. Feel the choir loft, you know, with eighty people, and just have throwdown church mm-hmm. in that regard, you know. So uh, that that part of it I miss. Uh, there were also iconic ministries. You know, I think that we get an affinity for the things that we grew up with, you know, and uh, I see those uh, differences even in my children. You know, I grew up, you know, my my children really don't grow up the way I grew up. And so what they like and dislike is maybe much different. Uh, But, uh, you know, those uh, iconic Preachers of the '90s. Now we have great preachers today, but uh, of course. but the '90s. Uh, you know, when I look back on that, and I like to go back and watch uh, an old because of the times of C. M. Becton. Oh man, it's good stuff. I love the ministry of C. M. Becton. Mm. Uh, a. Jim Kilgore. Yes. They were iconic ministries oh, yeah. that walked in the spirit. They were men of great faith. They built wonderful apostolic churches. And so you look back at those icons of the faith. and uh, Merle Ewing. Merle Ewing is one of my all-time favorites. Yeah. You know, I, Did, I, didn't you think that the Ewings wouldn't like you? <laughs> you were kind of concerned. Oh, you know, it's funny. <laughs> I grew up. Now this goes we back found to out my, they loved you. Well, we go back to this uh, eighteen to thirty year old range. I grew up much differently than my wife grew up. You know, I grew up rough. I might want to come back to that. Yes, real quick. Is it a true story that your parents got in an argument over gospel truth and had a fight? Yes. <laughs> so my mother was not of the apostolic faith, and my dad wasn't either. You know, my dad was a uh, a hooligan. I mean, my my dad was uh, involved with drugs and alcohol, and you know sure. all kinds of uh, all kinds of things. And uh, my mother, she really was too. But um, so my mom took us to this church where her parents had gone, and uh, my grandfather was a deacon at the church. So my dad, uh, my dad, uh, my mom came home. She said, "I'm gonna start taking the boys." 
to church where my mom and dad go to church. My dad said, oh, no, you're not going to do that. I said, uh, my, uh, they don't baptize. In, no, they don't believe in the Holy Ghost. And so my mom said, okay. So there was what they would call in those days, this would have been in the 70s, uh, they called them holiness churches. Yes. And so we would probably call it more like a, a charismatic type church mm-hmm. today or whatever. This is East Tennessee. East Tennessee, and it was a holiness church. Yeah. The mountains were so high, y'all didn't even know. We didn't know the sun came out until <laughs> we left town. Was. That's right. So my mom, she went to this, she went to a revival service and got the Holy Ghost at one of these Ooh. holiness churches. So uh, she came home and she said, uh, Harold, I got the Holy Ghost last night. Mm. Now, mind you, my dad's only uh, understanding of church at all was that when he was very young, my grandmother and grandfather had been baptized in Jesus' name and got the Holy Ghost in Detroit, Michigan, Mm. while my grandfather was working for Chrysler. Wow. And so uh, when he got laid off from Chrysler, they moved back to East Tennessee and never went to church. There wasn't a church within several miles of their home. Hmm. And so, but my grandfather who was not living for the Lord at all, in fact, would end up divorcing my grandmother and had addiction issues himself, would um, uh, gather all of his kids in the living room and tell them truth. Hmm. Repentance, Jesus' name, baptism, and fill in the wow. Holy Ghost. So um, my dad believed it. So he marries my mother, and my mother is not of this faith. And so my dad's like, you know, you're not taking my kids to one of those churches. So she gets the Holy Ghost in this holiness church and uh, comes home and tells my dad. My dad said, no, uh, you're not taking the kids there either because they believe in three gods. Hmm. So So it was in him. Wow. It was in him. Wow. I mean, he didn't live it, but it was in him. Long story medium, my grandfather tells my mom there's a United Pentecostal Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and they baptize in Jesus' name. And so my mom went to the church on Easter, Easter Sunday night. Back then they had night service, and Easter Sunday night, um, she got baptized in Jesus' name. Wow. And so uh, she came home, and uh, she was not willing to at all embrace apostolic identity. And so uh, my dad's like, you know, you're going to have to live right, too. And he's preaching to he's her. He's preaching to her. Now, mind you, he spent the last three nights at the bar, but he's preaching to my mother about how to be an apostolic. Doctrine gets into you. It gets in you. And it wow. should. Yeah. Uh, it's truth. He so my mom, my mom agrees with my dad. Now my mom's uh, very rough, raised rough, uh, and so my mom tells my dad, "Well, here's what we'll do: we'll have a fist fight, <laughs> and whoever wins will decide what we live in this house." Well. I, I guess eventually through that, to spare all the gory details, uh, my my dad wins, and uh, my mom decides to be an apostolic. <laughs> now, they would, through the years, obviously, be met with a number of challenges along the journey, and uh, but, you know, when my mom passed, she uh, was serving the Lord. Praise. So, um, it's, uh, so all of those years kind of uh, were interesting. Uh, 
but my parents both would eventually come to know the Lord and uh, would uh, love truth. I love that quite differently in the way Sister Huckabee grew up. And and so when you met the Ewans, you're kind of worried. Oh, Whoa. I meet Natalie, and <laughs> Natalie's nothing like what I grew up with. Right. Her family is kind and gentle, and they, yeah. uh, you know, they love God, and they, uh, their communication styles are so much different than what I grew up in. And they settle arguments with arguments. They settle arguments differently. But the Huckabees. No, they it's very civil with very, fists. <laughs> So my mom, so I, you know, my my wife was very different, and so when I met Natalie, their their family was very, uh, very good friends with the Ewings, and so they were talking about Joan and Merle Ewing one day, you know. Uh, so I I just didn't. It wasn't just the Ewings. It was just maybe. Um, what I would have considered to be heroes of the faith, Iconic. you know, Iconic, yeah. you know, apostolic people that they were, uh, they had friendships with. And I said, uh, I, you know, I don't know how to act around these people. I mean, I don't know. I, you know, truth is, Justin, I still don't know how to act around those people. And I've been doing this a long time now. Uh, but I, <clears throat> I said, I don't know how they're going to receive me and, uh, just people in general, you know, yeah. and uh, and I remember Brother Black saying to me one day, he said, Huck, he said, uh, we love you uh, because of who you are. Right. And Joan and Merle, no disrespect there, that was his comment, Joan and Merle are going to love you just like we do. Of course. And so over the years, we would have fellowship, you know, on a number of occasions, and uh, it was a... You know, I, I don't know what you say more about it, except, you know, you find authentic people are truly authentic all the oh, time, yeah. you know. And so it really wasn't a matter of who you were or what your background was. Truly authentic people love everybody yeah. along the journey. Those 90s so, iconic preachers were actually very personable men and women of God. You mentioned the Beckton's, you know, he's family yeah. to me, his wife, uh Margie Beckton, she was Margie Dyson. Okay. Charles Dyson, my mom's dad, my grandpa, that was his sister. And my dad tells me the story when he was dating my mom back in 1977, 78. He goes to general conference, and he comes out in the lobby, and the Becktons are there, and they want to meet Stan. Uh, <laughs> and, he, and he said, Brother Beckton got up, gave him a hug. He said, call me Uncle Cleveland. And he looked down, and Sister Beckton, Aunt Margie, was eating crackers and cheese. Oh. <laughs> It's so down to earth, you know, and like Brother Pugh was a jokester. Yeah. Uh, One of my favorites. They all had personalities. One of my favorites, and I actually uh, several years ago got to preach in the church where this happened. Obviously, he's been gone for a long time. There's a new pastor there, but uh, in, in the altar... In the church in Port Arthur, where mm. uh, Brother J.T. Pugh pastored, oh. uh, which I, I think maybe the flood may have gotten it now. But okay. uh, so this has been a few years ago. I was evangelizing 
off to the side. They had the baptistry just off to the side in the altar play, uh, altar space. So you would have, you know, your platform or whatever. Just off the edge of the platform is the baptistry, and so they would obviously go down there and baptize people uh, after service or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, much different, really, than when, now. When was the building built? Design. I, I don't even know. 60s. It was an older. It was an older building. And I, in fact, I think he may have built the building, so it would date back. Wow. Several years. Well, uh, the story was that there's a Wednesday night when he's teaching and he looks out across the congregation and people are just really not as tuned in as they probably should be for Wednesday night Bible study. I wish I knew the answer to how to fix that because I still have that issue now uh, all these years later. Story of my life. uh, Exactly. So Brother Pugh is teaching and... And the story goes that he looks up and eyes are all glazed over and no one's really paying attention. And so he just lays down the mic and just maybe for lack of a better phrase, he just cannonballs right into that (laughs) baptistry, (laughs) right into that baptistry, gets out of the baptistry, soaked in his full suit, walks back to the podium, picks up the mic and says, well, I guess I have your attention now. I mean, it's personality, mm-hmm. it's iconic ministry. Uh, I referred to Cleveland Beckton because I also remember through those years him preaching in Tennessee a lot. Obviously, he had pastored there yeah. twice, and his son uh, pastored there as well. Uh, but he, every time he spoke, there's a move of the Spirit. Yes. Deep moves of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And it really didn't matter what subject he approached. I, I think what started this was us talking about, and we delineated from the path from time to time in the conversation. But we, podcast, we, anything we've goes. talked about, you know, maybe what made the '90s special, yeah. or and some of those men. Uh, there was a touch of God that was on them, right. and when you didn't have a service. Uh, that you didn't have a move of God. And it really didn't matter Every what service. they preached. Yeah. It didn't matter what Cleveland Beckton walked up there and preached. There was a move of God. There was always a response in the spirit. And I I think that we I think we have that today. But again, I guess comparatively, I just say I think those things that happened in our childhood, those youth camps, you know, nothing's ever going to compare to our formidable years. Mm-hmm. And so the choirs and the preaching to you and I were the best. Oh yeah. But I think if you were to ask my Uh, 15-year-old, the same question, Mm -hmm. Uh, she would say there's nothing like the preaching of Landon Gore and Jason Staten and, uh, you know, what is their generation's voice. Mm -hmm. The Justin C. Gleason Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Please leave a five-star rating and a great review. Contact me at justincgleason at gmail.com. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Justin C. Gleason and share this episode with your friends. We're taking the genre of religion and spirituality to another level. Satan will be bound and I'll be free at last. My prayers 
I think the 90s, I think a lot of people weren't worried about the clock in the 90s when it came to church. It was like none of us had anywhere else to go or anything else to do. And nowadays, I think a lot of us were worried about the clock. And in some ways, it's a good thing, you know, to have some structure, some order. I think that's just the generation we're in. But I've just noticed, you know, the best get-togethers is when you ain't worried about the clock. <laughs> There's no time involved there you know if 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 you plan on two or three songs and and holy ghost took over you just kept singing <laughs> preachers it wasn't uncommon to have a 90 minute sermon oh and nobody cared you know we stuck with them but nowadays you know after 60 seconds what's next <laughs> well we obviously have been influenced there to some degree by media but I, I, you know, but Gleason, I, I think that we, I, I think the church has challenges. Yeah. Uh, I'm not, I'm not here advocating uh, for a perfect church. No. Because the church has never been perfect. It's messy. Um, when I consider the New Testament church, you know, when Paul writes to Corinth, it's messy. It's messy. You know, there is a reason why that Paul writes to the church at Galatia and says, uh, oh, oh, by the way, these are the works of the flesh. Mm-hmm. I, essentially, what Paul is saying is you're carnal. Yes. He's not writing those to sinners. He's not writing those letters to people, you know, that are hanging out at the bar. He's writing those letters to people in church. Exactly. And he's calling out fornicators in the church. He's calling out adultery in the church. He's calling out dress and he's calling out all kinds of issues. If you look at the origins of the works of the flesh, Paul's dealing with the church. That's a, a son and stepmom. That, okay, so now fast forward to where we are, and really the first century church and the modern church look a whole lot alike. Church is still messy. Yes. And I don't care what you sing or what you don't sing, you still got to deal with carnality. Yeah. And at the end of the day, we're not good at dealing with our flesh. Exactly. The issue of church in the first century church and the issue with church in the modern church is carnality. The carnal mind sure is not is. enmity with God, is not subject to the laws of God, neither indeed can be. When Paul when Paul is writing to the first century church, he might as well, and we believe this theologically, he might as well be writing to the modern church yeah, where we live today. So it is applicable to the modern church, what Paul's writing in Galatia. These are the works of the flesh. I think the challenges that we face in everyday ministry, 
and what we find in our houses of worship as we try to shepherd God's people in the modern church is that the issue today is the same issue in the first century church, and that is carnality. Hmm. And carnality is so prevalent in the church. I think that we have become maybe more tolerant of carnality. Mm. And so I think that our tolerance, now I'm not talking about being ugly or unkind, but I do. Because I think, saw some ugliness and unkind in the that's 90s. Right. <laughs> that's right. It was there. <laughs> but, and, and is here now and yeah. has been there since the first century church. I think the challenge in the modern church is that we have become very tolerant of carnality. Mm -hmm. And there has to be a way, there has to be something in the heart of people. And I'm not just talking about uh, a pastor standing in the pulpit uh, being indignant or unkind or intolerant uh, to people and people issues. But I think that we, as the body of Christ, have become very tolerant of our own behaviors. Mm. So rather than go crawl up on the altar and work on ourselves, we easily tolerate the desires of our own flesh. Mm. You know, I... uh, I found that something, is a big difference. I found something. That. I found something interesting in what might be considered the greatest revival of the first century church. Is it possible? And I'm not a theologian, but is it possible, Brother Gleason, that Cornelius was the fountainhead? Hmm. of the greatest revival of the first century church. Had to be. I mean, if you consider that Israel was the least of the least of the least. Yes. If everyone had been a convert, it would pale in comparison to the revival that the Gentile, because everybody else was a Gentile. Yeah. That the conversion of a Gentile, the, the the opening of the partition for the Gentile church to now become part of the first century church, it had to be the seed of the greatest revival that the church has ever experienced. The So if I could use that for a frame of reference, Cornelius represented the greatest revival in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Now, here's what's interesting. Cornelius was the guy who prayed to God always. Mm-hmm. He gave. Yep. And his praying and his giving opened a God connection. Yes. Where the Lord spoke to him and said, uh, Hey, Cornelius, send men to Joppa. There's one Simon Peter who's residing with Simon the Tanner. He's going to tell you what you need to do. Mm -hmm. 
You know, I don't know that I can prove this historically or theologically, but there are uh, some writers who make this correlation. But the Bible talks about that at Calvary, there was a centurion there. And the centurion yeah. makes this statement for he truly was. He had yeah. he understood who God was. Yeah. All the signs going on at Calvary. And there are some theologians who believe that Cornelius is that centurion hmm. and that Calvary so impacted him that he went home and he was praying and giving when he couldn't even be saved. Wow. His praying and giving. Here's, here's where I think the challenge is for the modern day church is that we need, like Cornelius, to let Calvary work on us again. Amen. And so Cornelius allowed Calvary to work on him to such a degree that it opened a God connection and God started talking to him. God wants to talk to our generation, but we have to let Calvary work on us. Absolutely. And when that happened, the result of one man working on himself, not everybody else. Mm. You know, I, I want to be careful right here. Yes. But the apostolic church has got lots of forums Yeah, where everybody's working on everybody else. <laughs> the apostolic church has got lots of media outlets where everybody's working on everybody else. Mm-hmm. And you working on everybody else doesn't bring revival. Mm. But Cornelius looking in the mirror and allowing Calvary to affect him, one man praying and giving and working on himself, opened the partition and the door for the greatest revival that the apostolic church has ever had. Current construct of the apostolic church Praise. has to be one in which we work on ourselves. I got to go look in the mirror, examine ourselves, and see if it be of the Lord. Yeah. So I have to work on me. Cornelius worked on himself. The Bible doesn't say he was working on his family. The Bible doesn't record that he was working on everybody else, converting everybody else, changing the life of everybody else. He worked on himself. And when he started praying and giving to a God that at that point couldn't even save him or wouldn't, hmm. God said, you know what? I see something in this man. And I'm not only going to save him, but him working on himself is going to save his entire family. Yes. When the apostle Peter showed up, here's, here's the other thing I think that would help and I, again, we're talking about the church, but I, I think it would help in our modern construct of church and our understanding of church is we got parents who are worried about their kids coming home. We got parents or where do I draw this boundary? How do I draw this boundary? What do mm -hmm. I do here? Or how do I handle this situation in my family? I got a spouse who's unsaved. What do I do here? And how do I handle this? Let me tell you what you do. Work on yourself. Yes, kids need to see it. I, it's amazing. I, again, this is pretty direct. 
But it's amazing how we want our kids to live a different way than we live as the example. Cornelius didn't show up and say, all right, kids, I want all of you all to do A, B, and C. No. He worked on himself. Mm -hmm. And when he worked on himself, he got a word from the Lord. Wow. If we want to get a word from the Lord and direction for our next steps, we need to work on us. Yes. And when you work on yourself, God starts speaking. Hmm. Because you don't have to work alone. He'll get involved in your working on you. And the Bible said that when the apostle Peter came, and then obviously in Acts 10, 44, while Peter yet spake the word, the Holy Ghost fell. Watch this. His entire house is saved. Yes. It spills out into the street, and they have this little sidebar. Isn't this powerful? Prejudices in the church are healed. Amen. Remember, remember how that they that really you've got the board there scrutinizing whether a Gentile can get the Holy Ghost or not. Yeah. So you got them of the circumcision that are there trying to decide, okay, and the Bible says, How can we forbid water? Mm-hmm. Seeing as they have received the Holy Ghost like we received it. Hey, something's happened here among the Gentile nation. And so we're gonna receive it. Those people couldn't even come to church before that moment. No, they couldn't. So here's what happened. One man working on himself, not out there blasting everybody, not being the spiritual windmill for the entire generation. One man Mm -hmm. worked on himself. And when he worked on himself, he healed the church of prejudice. One man working on himself saved his entire family. One man working on himself became what would be the conduit for the greatest apostolic revival, maybe, that the church has ever seen. I think our issue, and this is going back to 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, comparatively to the 21st century church, is where our generation is struggling is the inability to go look in the mirror and work on ourselves. Oh, God, yeah. Man, Brother Huckabee, I feel conviction. That's a good feeling. (laughs) Praise God. A lot of these things you're talking about, they probably developed in you from the ages of 18 to 30, hearing God, working on you, developing yourself uh, to become a teacher, to become a preacher, marriage, becoming a father. All of those things, it's crucial, and I think we need to keep on doing that. You preached a phenomenal message this past uh, camp meeting here, here at this campus at the, at the Northwest Regional Camp Meeting. The tragedy of misplaced purpose. Tragedy of misplaced purpose. And a lot of what we've been talking about kind of flows into that message. Isn't it something how preachers, you get a common theme like in a year or a quarter or mm-hmm. whatever, and it's like it touches every message you preach. You mm-hmm. know? And I love that message. It was so timely and so good for us. And it's, uh, I just want to ask you, where did you get the idea? For you know, that Justin, I've, I, I've never told this from the pulpit. Uh, I, um, not because there's any reason why, but, um, it's been a, a couple of years ago, uh, Nat and the kids had, um, already gone to her parents for Christmas and I, uh, had stayed, uh, here, uh, in Kansas city to preach on Sunday 
and then I was leaving Sunday night uh, to meet them uh, at her parents for the holidays. And uh, I went to sleep one night. It's it's only happened to me twice in my entire life. And uh, I had a vision. Mm. And in the vision, uh, I walked into Saul's courtroom. King Saul. King Saul. It was much different, really, than what I expected to see. Uh, it really wasn't palatial at all. It was uh, primitive, sure, and I and I guess that would make sense in, in a historical context. But right. uh, I walked in. Uh, Saul was sitting on his throne, but it was really more like a chair. Uh, he was sitting in a chair uh, in in like a little concave of a room, and uh, I looked to the left and I could see Saul. Uh, I looked to the right, and it was veiled, but I could hear a man uh, playing a musical instrument, and I knew that it was David. Hmm. Um, and when I walked into that room, the Lord spoke to me and said, another man can never fight the enemy that you're unwilling to confront yourself. Hmm. Hmm. So I got up and went to prayer. And in it, uh, the Lord began to speak to me uh, in additionally to the things that I saw in that vision. Uh, the Lord began to speak to me uh, about some of the tragedies of Saul's life, mm -hmm. what he was called to, what he was called for. And so it became the crux of that message. You know, one of the interesting, and it goes along with what I mentioned here, uh, just even with regard to my comments about Cornelius, but um, Saul, you know, I would think that if I were Saul and I was called and anointed uh, for the purpose that God called Saul too, uh, as uh, the king of Israel. But I would think, uh, Brother Gleason, that I would, uh, if the prophet looked at me and said, today the kingdom is rent from you, yeah, that I'd find a place of prayer and repentance. If the prophet who had been so instrumental, not only in my personal anointing, but in the victories of Israel, and he were to say to me from the Lord, oh, by the way, the kingdom's rent from you, and I found one better than you. <laughs> I would find a place of repentance and say, God, would you work this out in me? Exactly. But he did not respond in repentance. He did something that I think is a plague in our generation. Number one, and I say this about that, he was unwilling to confront the issues in himself. Sure. Why did he have another man come play an instrument and drive an evil spirit away from him when he had the authority to work the issue out in himself? 
But instead, he turned to someone else with a musical instrument and said, I want you to work the internal conflict out of me that I'm unwilling to deal with. Yes, sir. And the other was this. The Bible says that Saul never deals with that issue on that particular day with King Agag. And he looks at Saul and says, okay, uh, I, I, this may be putting words in the king's mouth, but uh, oh, I'm, I'm okay with I'm okay with your comments here. But would you come stand by me hmm. and worship with me in front of the host of Israel? Hmm. In other words, uh, let's look like that we have something we don't have anymore. Hmm. I understand that the anointing has departed, but let's just get together and make it look like it always looks like so that no one will ever be able to know that I'm not anointed anymore. Hmm. The tragedy, the tragedy of Saul's life is that he became image conscience. Sure did. And in the absence of real authority and real anointing, he just wanted to look like he had something he didn't have anymore. Mm -hmm. God help the church that we don't have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. Come on. God help the modern church that we don't look like the church, sound like the church, smell like the church have all the additives of the church, sing like the church. But when people show up, we have no power in our assembly. God help us. And so that, the tragedy of misplaced purpose came out of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, out of that uh, event, if you will. Wow. It was a message that helped us rediscover why we do what we do. And that is to be apostolic. And I feel such a pull from the Holy Ghost for you and I and our listeners today to um, rediscover, examine yourself. And that piece you did about um, we're correcting each other but not working on ourselves. Man, that's exactly where we're at. And we become tolerant of so much. And, and tolerance is really killing America. You know, I, I would it's, say, I would say, I would say this too, uh, and part of that message, even, and I'm not saying that we don't love one another. There's a way to love, and I'm not, I'm not in any way advocating for intolerance uh, in terms of allowing people to make the journey of faith yeah, process at their at the pace that God's leading and directing them. I'm not saying that at all, but I am saying that they're uh, as shepherds that God's called the, uh, God's called the shepherd to uh, be a boundary drawer, if you will. Yes. You know, the gospel in and of itself draws a boundary with sin. And so I, I think that we, uh, we had to be careful in this age and in the culture, allowing the influence of culture. You know, 1 Corinthians 11 is written because they're allowing the influence of Corinth to come into the church. Mm -hmm. And we got to be careful that our assemblies uh, are not 
and our worship styles and forums are not built out of just tolerating uh, the current world culture from coming into the church. Yeah. And so we know that that's there. We know that there, uh, there's precedent in the scripture for that to happen. We we tolerate everything. You know, I was uh, – uh, there was an article, I think it may have been this morning, that uh, while the libraries are okay with allowing transgender people to come in and read – uh, in the library, uh, they won't allow someone to come in and read a Christian book in that nope. same library. They won't. And so we become very intolerant, if yeah. you will, <laughs> to the Word of God, the Scripture. Mm-hmm. If we're not careful, we will allow that cultural construct to come into the church, and it'll influence our leadership styles and our pastoral preferences and how we build our boundaries as a generation. And I, we can't afford that. No, you know, uh, Saul's issue, and I, I want to make two statements here. Is uh, one is that Saul's issue is that God called him. God anointed him. Yes. The tragedy of Saul's life is that he forgot what God called him to be. Yeah. God never called him to be the king. God called him to be a warrior. That's right. And we're in a battle. That's what Samuel spoke over him, right? That's exactly right. When he anointed him, when he anointed him with oil, for God hath anointed thee to be the captain of the Lord's heritage. God's called you to be a warrior, to lead them in the fight, not to succumb to the cultural draws of the environment that you're leading in. I'm calling you to fight in this battle. And and Saul was unwilling to do that. Why would you? Why would you, if you're head and shoulders above everyone else in the entire military force, do you know that comparatively Saul is the only man whose stature compared in any way to that of Goliath? Yeah. And yet he goes and sends a 15-year-old boy into battle with a giant because the guy that is most prepared, the captain, the battle leader of the Lord's heritage, the guy who is head and shoulders above everybody else, he's unwilling to go to the fight, so he sends a 15-year-old kid. It it really makes no sense. No sense. Except that Saul just decided to sit in the lazy boy of his affluency and the comfortability of the environment he was in, and he just decided he didn't want to fight stuff anymore. Right. That's where we got to be careful because in this generation we're ministering to. I don't think there's any more evil present than was in the first century church. Correct. I don't think that there's any more problems today than there was in Corinth. Mm. I think what differentiates us is that we're unwilling to take up the sword and go to battle Mm. because we have become very comfortable Mm. 
in culture accepting us. Man. <laughs> wow. What a message. So I, I think that we, that, and I think we have to be careful that we're not uh, in an identity crisis about who we are and what our purpose is. Sure. And we, um, that we just don't want to, uh, I, I referred to this uh, a moment ago, uh, we don't want to just look like the church. We have to be the church. <laughs> yes. Awesome. awesome. Brother Huckabee, as usual, phenomenal content, great biblical insight, and uh, such a quality of humor. And truly, you do have a personality that touches everyone's hearts, from the, from the Ewings to me, and I'm sure Bishop Bernard. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Justin, I, I, I always it's a joy always to be with you. We always have a good time, and uh, it, I guess our uh, relationship uh, is such that uh, really what people have heard here on the podcast uh, might be uh, somewhat like one of our coffee shop conversations, although we cleaned it up a little bit. But um, our uh, our communication is going to be uh, we're going to have a lot of fun and we're going to laugh. Oh, yeah. uh, and then we're going to be spiritual and then we're going to laugh some more and then be spiritual. And uh, so uh, I, I think that's always uh, a good uh, relationship or friendship to have. And I'm thankful for your friendship and your voice. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know that this is said as frequently on this podcast as it should be, but I do appreciate the gifts that the Lord's put in your life. Um, I, I know that we're at the conclusion of this, but I want to, I want to make this statement too, is that I believe that the church, if ever, we have needed it. We need prophetic voices to speak to the apostolic church. Amen. When Saul showed up to Saul's delineation from the call, it was his prophetic voice mm -hmm. that set the tone. Exactly. Um, throughout the Holy Writ, whether it was David and thou art the man, or it was Samuel and whatever forum he was in, or it was an Old Testament prophet or a New Testament prophet, we need spiritual prophetic voices to help us in the hour that we live in. And I want to say here in this uh, forum that I appreciate the prophetic voice that you have been to me personally uh, and to my family. So you're not only my friend, but I appreciate your anointing oh. and what it's meant to our journey. So I love so, you and Anna and the babies a whole lot. <laughs> we love you, your wife, your kids, your church, your ministry. Thank you for those kind words that really blessed me. All right, let's go eat. Let's go eat. All right. The tragedy of Saul's life is that he misinterpreted what God had called him to be. God never anointed him to be the king of Israel. God anointed him to be the captain of the Lord's heritage. Captain is not a position for royalty. It is the title of a military commander. 
because God never called Saul to be a palace dwelling monarch. He was anointed to be a battle ready defender of the heritage of the Lord. Can I stop here and make this statement that we are not called and positioned for titles and names and thoughts and ideas, but God has positioned the church with an armed sword ready to defend the inheritance of God. Yes. 